It's time for mystery. Mystery Radio. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. One sure way to reduce the body beautiful and eliminate excess fat is horizontal living. Lie prone and don't blow your lid. Your coffin lid, that is. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. A smart confidential cop keeps a straitjacket handy as standard office equipment. The time has to come when you want to rush a prospective client to Bellevue for observation. What else can you do when a guy pops in, tells you his name is Julius Caesar, and then without any further explanation, starts bawling like a baby? <laughs> Julius Caesar, right out of Runyon. Pants under his hip line like a burlicue comic. A checkered vest with egg stains. And a face that could only advertise a meat grinder. Here, my handkerchief, dry your eyes. I only said to dry your eyes. Uh, you through blubbering? Uh, uh, yeah. What are you crying over? Cleo. Your dog? My wife. She ran off with a piano mover? Would I be wearing this armband? Oh, black armband. I'm sorry. You're a widower. No. You said she was your wife. Is my wife. She died and came back? Cleo never died. Then why the mourning band? Cleo is gonna die, for sure. Some incurable disease? <laughs> you and me put together, Cleo is healthier. Now I'm in utter confusion. I was to a tea room. Oh, I didn't know they had pool tables and tea rooms. Look, I'm in there getting my fortune told. I'm gonna lose Cleo, it says in the tea leaves. Cleo has got to go. What's going to kill her? Not what. Who? That is what I want to know. You, maybe? Chop off my arm, I wouldn't hurt Cleo. I love this doll. That's the uh, whole basis of your fears? Cleo didn't make out in the tea leaves? Let alone that, someone has tried to get to her already. Clear up, uh, get to her for me. Rub her out. Depart Cleo from my midst. Somebody tried to murder Cleo? What was I saying? Don't you know? Okay, murder. Describe the attempt, Julius. Cleo has got a medicine for Pep. A hangover had her down. So she took a swallow of this stuff. What was she drinking instead? Poison. Somebody had switched the bottles on Cleo. That's the attempt? No, I got a few more. This one, for instance. Coming down the stairs. Soap. Now her spine is out of whack. Cleo leans a little. To the right or left? Left. No, uh, right. No. Oh, I give up. <laughs> Who's behind all the mayhem? I wouldn't be here if I knew. Here. Three C's on account. I took a mortgage on a shop. Shop? Flowers. I run a flower shop over at Prince and Fort. For free, any time, I'll make you up a wreath. 
Oh, no, thanks. Save it for Cleo. The biggest in town. When Cleo goes, it'll need a Mack truck to haul it. Here, I'll, uh, I'll show you a picture of Cleo in a bathing suit. Hmm. Where's the bathing suit? Bikini. That's a type suit. In the picture there, Cleo's in the contest. Contest? Yeah, Mrs. Apple Pie, 1952. This is a contest for married queens who can bake. Uh, a gent who manufactures the stuff, the pies, that is, Mr. Willoughby. He's, uh, he's sponsoring the contest, 20 grand. 20 grand? That's the first prize. How are Cleo's chances? You've seen her picture. Hmm, but I haven't tasted her pie. Smooth. It slides into your stomach. You don't even need no teeth. Cleo can't miss. Only, you see, that's what's going to get her knocked off. The envious competition. Yeah, them. Cleo's got to be stopped, somebody figures. Oh, please, don't leave me lose her. Well, I'll do my best. Where is Cleo now? Calamity House. That's a hotel uh, this sponsor Willoughby rented out in Sheepshead Bay. The whole joint. Every contestant has got to stay there and take a turn in the kitchen. Baking pies. All week long. They judge them on the pies, and then they judge them on their looks. Calamity House. Okay, Julius, you've whet my appetite. I'll go have myself a pie. As it so happened, I ran into Cleo before I got to Calamity House and Apple Pie Heaven on the highway, going up an incline where a sign warned Horseshoe Curve. Coincidence or destiny? I made a note to look up a mystic and ask him sometime. Anyhow, I hadn't made the top of the hill when a car flung around the upper level curve coming down toward me. A car out of control, it looked like. I braked to a dead stop. A runaway car whizzed past me. I got a photo look of a lady driver, and then came the crash. A car crash creates employment. Specialists pile in like grips at a sideshow. When the emergency squads got finished, I huddled with Lieutenant Trav Rogers. Trav had jumped at the chance to head out to Sheepshead Bay at the first radio flash. Trav liked the sea air. Cleo Odell was her name. Cleo Odell Caesar. Caesar? She was married to Julius Caesar. Her age didn't show. I'm not joking. No, you're not? All right, instruct me. Later. Meanwhile, uh, let's get down to the whys and wherefores of the accident. Negligent driving or inexperience coming down inclines or her brakes wouldn't work. Au revoir, Cleo Odell. No good, Trav. What's wrong with my reconstruction? The cuts and gashes on the victim's face and neck. You get badly marked up and cut racing down hell into a crash? I examined the car. So did I. The safety glass cracked, but it didn't shred or splinter. Yes, that's so. I made a note of that. Even wondered a bit. With no chips of glass flying about, how could she get cut up as she was? Another thing. Yes, Craig? If you checked over the course. I left that to Dr. Conway. I didn't. I satisfied myself. The bleeding from those cuts on her face and neck... They'd begun to dry. You're certain of that? I'm positive they couldn't be fresh wounds sustained from the crash itself. Those cuts and gashes came earlier, before the bottom of the hill. You mustered a pretty convincing story. I've got a clincher. Come over to the wreck. Take a look at the gas accelerator. All right. So? Feel around it. It's wedged to the floorboard. What's wedging it? What? Oh, wait. A pebble. 
This pebble was wedging the gas accelerator. I discovered that 20 minutes ago. But I had two men, Muller and Wilson. They missed the pebble. They weren't looking for evidence of foul play. No. Looked for all the world like a cut-and-dried vehicular accident. Car out of control, an unfortunate fatality. It was murder. Cleo Odell was beaten to death, beaten around the head and neck by a blunt instrument. That's where she got those cuts and gashes. The killer then sat her in the car, rigged the gas accelerator by wedging it with this pebble, switched on the ignition, sent the car down the incline. Trying for the perfect murder. In Calamity House, pattering about the main suite like a Maharaja, I found the contest sponsor and pie manufacturer, Mr. Willoughby. His Highness was wearing a scarlet lounging robe with a golden dragon growling across it. Uh, this uh, tragedy, Mr. Craig, it casts a damper. Murder does that, Willoughby. Murder? What do I thought? The first police flash was a mistake. Leah was beaten to death before she went joyriding down an incline. I'm bewildered. I, I cannot grasp. Let's stray from the corpse until your blood pressure can take it better. Answer me this. What were Cleo Odell's chances of pocketing your $20,000? Why, most excellent indeed. Her pies hit the spot. They were outstanding. In the first four contest days, Cleo Odell had won 456 points. We have a point-scoring system. Skip the intricacies. Who was the runner-up? The misses closest to Cleo's 456. The contestant most likely to win, if not for Cleo. Why, uh, Lois LaRue... A point score so far, I believe, is uh, 372. Yes, 372. And the rest of the field? Oh, below 200. Their chances of forging ahead to victory are quite doubtful. Okay, then. Lois LaRue. Cleo alive could cost Lois $20,000. Surely you don't think... I'm only asking. Now, uh, about looks, uh, shapes, how much rides with that? Physical beauty determines the winner only in the event that there is a close race between uh, two or three contestants. If the spread in points between contestant one and two, or one and two and three, is less than 50... Less than 50? Well, that ends that. Cleo is a mile ahead of everybody. Her runner-up and survivor, this Lois LaRue, is also miles ahead of the field. Yes. After Cleo Ordell, it appears the award must go to Lois LaRue. Who awards points? Or maybe, let me say it this way... Who judges the quality of the pies and hands out the points? Uh, why, uh, our judge, Mr. Cornell, uh, Vincent Cornell. Uh, Mr. Cornell is a well-known illustrator. Who appointed him judge? I did. If you're minded to impugn... Simmer down, Your Highness. I'm just acquainting myself with background. All right for me to go have myself a pie? Why, of course. Any number of them. The kitchen is on the basement level. Every pie is enriched with exclusive Willoughby ingredients... A secret miracle chemical, exclusive with Willoughby. Cut, you've got your plug in. You're keeping me from the pies. I loaded up on pies, and then I let Lois LaRue feed me vital statistics about herself. A brunette with hair of midnight black, and a cute nose that tilted at the tip like a ski jump. Her bathing suit made me feel overdressed. Lois looked like she'd been tipped off to my coming. She had soft lights and softer music going. A drink, Mr. Craig? No, thanks. And, uh, let's switch off the music, huh? Romance and murder mix badly. Oh, it was a terrible thing. Cleo had so much to live for. There was a neat $20,000 in her future. But you can't say that with certainty. The contest hasn't finished. It was in the bag for Cleo. 
She was a mile ahead on points, ahead of you. There are nine contestants here in Calamity House. The other seven are hanging on for the exercise. All right, I won't argue it. Except to say that I felt... Well, I felt I could win somehow. And somehow you're going to, that's for sure. I don't know how to take that. Resent it if you can muster outraged innocence. If I can... Why, of all the gods... Ah, no throwing things. And don't throw music and curves at me, beautiful. I look at that utterly utter torso of yours, all I can see is a corpse. The corpse of Cleo Dell. Now, let's get businesslike. Well, what do you expect of me? Some insight into you. You're right up front in my gallery of suspects. Merely because I was closest to winning after Cleo? Because 20 grand is bait, and you look to me like hunger. Like you'd die if you lost the contest. All right. I admit it. I am intense about winning. I don't dare lose. This contest isn't my gamble alone. They're investors. It's their gamble, too. Investors meaning... Backers. My family and friends. They've shelled out every penny they could raise to dress me, pay for my photographs, publicity, miscellaneous expenses. I'm a corporate body. I've been cut into percentages, into pieces. Familiar stuff, speaking of contests. How does your husband fit into the situation? My husband? This is a contest for married women only. Oh, yes, my husband, Zach. Zach? Zach Foster. He he manages me, too, represents me. Where is he? Why, around. Zach floats around. What is he, a balloon? Oh, well, I, I mean, Zach can't be pinned down to a place, so to speak. He's on the move, making arrangements, contacts. Sometimes he's here at the hotel, other times somewhere else. I see. Next time you see Zach, tell him to stay put long enough to exchange introductions with me. Tell him Barry Craig wants to talk to him. The absent husband, Zach, presented himself a little unexpectedly. I was down in the kitchen again, sinking my overjoyed molars into more pies. You Barry Craig? Wait till I check my driver's license. Put your hands up. Must I? And don't put your hands up. See if I can. <laughs> Teacher. Oh, my God. Teach me what? To terrorize my wife. I talk better standing. I terrorized your wife, you say? No, it's LaRue. I found her in hysterics, a poor kid. Crying her eyes out. You just left, she said. I talked to her, sure. You worked over her. Like she was on trial. She must feel awfully guilty to have reacted like that. Watch your tongue, Craig. You can't throw murder accusations around and get away with it. Not with Zach Foster around, huh? Lois is sensitive. Like a cigar store Indian. She goes off her feet. She can't bake. She thins down because she can't eat or sleep. She loses her figure. She consequently loses the contest. Yeah. That's your game? To take the steam out of Lois? You working on the slide for some other contestant? Uh-huh. You admit it. I'm working in the open for some other contestant. For Cleo Odell. Wise guy. Cleo Odell. Want to confess to murder, or maybe? Craig, I'm going to declare total war. You already declared it, chum. You fired the first shot. My turn now for a counteroffensive. I was up before the count of ten, chum. Let's see if you beat my time. 
One thing about a contest judge, he doesn't ever look the part. He looks nervous, like he's only doing the job because somebody's got a gun at his head. The illustrator, Vincent Cornell, gave the standard impression. Oh, how I ever got into this thing. How did you? Mr. Willoughby requested me to judge the contest as a personal favor to him. Why should that move you? Well, Mr. Willoughby is an important advertiser in magazines I do illustrating for. It was uh, necessary goodwill that I... And you did. Mm. Now to the contest. Question. Has there been any undue pressure on you? Undue pressure? To influence you, get you to vote points, favor some one contestant. Well, what makes you think to ask that? Since I don't see you blow an immediate fuse, it looks like my question is very much in order. I... I have no answer for you. Don't make me coax too hard. We're not just passing the time, Cornell. Yes, I I know the seriousness, the enormity, Miss Odell. The recent Miss Odell. I I can't afford to get involved and get mixed up. A scandal could be troublesome to me professionally. Pursue your investigation in some other manner. Interrogate the others and good luck to you. I, I simply will not be involved and I'll say nothing. In fact, I'm I'm resigning as judge at once. Come off it, Cornell. You can resign all over the lot, but you're still going to find things troublesome. What What do you mean? Late hours in a certain room in police headquarters. There'll be 20 guys packed around, with you the center of attraction. How do you sleep sitting up in a straight chair? Mr. Craig, I, I'm confused. Tell what you know and watch the confusion evaporate. Undue influence. What about it? Well... I found myself pressed to favor Cleo Odell. Cleo Odell? You seem surprised. Yeah. I thought any pressure on you would be on behalf of the runner-up, Lois LaRue. That nice husband of hers, so-called Zach Foster. No, no. There, there were no overtures made to me, no pressure or prompting for Lois LaRue. Only for the late Cleo Odell. I, uh... In fact, uh, uh, question some 200 points I awarded her. In thinking it over later, I felt I was, uh, well, influenced. Who pressured you? Mind you, it, it wasn't overt. It, it was something subtle, more insidious. Say, a, a, a notion cleverly planted in my thinking, a, a bias. Never mind how it was done. Who pressured you? I'm... I'm... Ah! Cornell! I've been shot. Yeah. Someone outside your window, aiming a rifle. How bad is it? <coughs> it hurts. Go seize... Can't. I've got to lie here, flat beside you, and keep my fingers crossed. There's a second shot coming. And that was for me. Insurance, in case I'd gotten the whole story out of you. Name who pressured you for Cleo. Cornell. Cornell. Not much point questioning a corpse. Murder to shut Cornell up. A rifleman with a nice sense of timing. The search outside the window turned up nothing, except an overturned flower pot. No footprints. You don't find any on flagstone. The search of the grounds reintroduced me to my client, Julius. <laughs> Julius was sitting on the edge of a goldfish pond, crying into it. I loaned you my one good handkerchief this morning. I got it here in my pocket. 
Uh, be my guest. Blow your nose. Yeah. <sighs> you really got something to blubber about now. No kidding this time. I won't never stop crying. Do it someplace else. You got the fish pond overflowing. I lost Cleo. Cleo lost more. What brings you here to Calamity House? To see you. I got things to talk over. Where did you park your BB gun? I, I don't get you. How long have you been squatting down here? Ten minutes. Then you heard two rifle shots? No. Like peals of thunder and with breaking glass. What are you, stone deaf? No. No what? Not stone deaf, but I don't hear good. I once got a drafty from it because I don't hear good. Oh, Julius, you kill me. Wouldn't I like to? Repeat that, please. For losing me, Cleo. Craig, they're going to pin it on me. Lay Cleo's mitre to me. On what ground? Fifteen grand. Double indemnity. That makes thirty. Thirty thousand dollars? You carried insurance on Cleo? Yeah. Double if Cleo went in an accident, like a train or a car. A policy that size is suspicious. All of a sudden, I even suspect you myself, Julius. Oh, don't say that. Are there any other suspicious circumstances wrapped around that policy? Yeah, there are. You see, I got the policy only two weeks before... Two weeks before Cleo went down the incline? Yeah. Two weeks before this afternoon? Yeah, that's what. Cleo was murdered and the killer tried awfully hard to make it look like an accident. A vehicular accident. Looks bad for me, huh? I can practically see you in the electric chair. Oh, Craig, don't say that. Get him like Julius and get your funny bone tickled. While a client may be fit you for a pair of horns. A comic character, friend Julius, weak in the head. But what was so dumb about 15 grand? Double indemnity equals 30. To me, it qualified Julius as a genius and maybe even a murderer. When a confidential cop's stuck for an answer, he reaches into his bag for a trick, like I did. My trick was to conceal evidence of murder. The illustrator and recent contest judge, Cornell. I decided to let him spend the first hour or so of the hereafter in a clothes closet. A corpse in a closet and uh, a locked room. In case people wanted about a little too freely in Calamity House. I made myself conspicuously available in Calamity House, the main lobby. I couldn't be missed by anybody. Even a blind man could reach me by the odor of my cigar. The first gent to buttonhole me was Zack Foster, looking as if it was quite an effort to come up and talk to me. Craig? Zack? Uh, okay to talk to you? Is it round two? No. Who was <laughs> over as far as I'm concerned? Anyhow, I... Peace. It's wonderful. Oh, frankly, I, I'm frightened stiff. Of what? Well, you mainly. The the way you go about things. And a slant you're working on. How Cleo O'Dell died, who killed her, and why. Did you? No. But it might fit. You might make it fit. That's why I'm scared. For me and a kid. Who's the kid? Lois. You see... You're about to make a confession. Yeah. A confession is something I think... You've already guessed? That you're not married to Lois. And you did guess. No. 
We're in a contest on false pretenses. We don't qualify. Lois is single. I promoted her into the lie. I got her to go along with the swindle, make out she was a Mrs. Mrs. Zach Foster. You've just talked yourself out of 20 grand. Yeah, I know. I'm scared off. I don't want a rap we don't rate. The murder of Cleo Dell can't be late to us. Now what, Zach? I'm going to locate the contest, Judge Cornell. Make a clean breast. Tell him what I just told you. Why Lois LaRue should be disqualified. Then I'm going to clear out. Uh, I mean, if it's okay with you. It's okay with me. You've just cleared yourself, all right, in a bigger way than you suspect. But stick around a while, anyhow. I stuck it out in the main lobby of Calamity House, behind a cigar, conspicuously available to all comers. The next arrival to claim my ear was the Maharaja himself, the contest sponsor, Willoughby. No purple dressing gown this time. The only thing purple on him was his face. Craig. Your Highness. I've been embarrassed and distressed. The Willoughby name has become infamous. The contest has been scandalized. I've become notorious. Relax, Willoughby. Relax, you say? With this, this succession of outrages? I disavow the contest. I'll scuttle it. Simmer down. You're raising your blood pressure. This apathy in you, this idiotic calm, with two mothers crying out for justice? Mr. Craig, I find you offensive. And I find you guilty. What's that? Guilty. What nonsense is this? You just convicted yourself. Two murders, you said. Cleo Odell is one. Who's number two? Why, Vincent Cornell. Correct. But only the murderer could know that. Only the murderer? There's been no uh, advertising of Cornell's fate. I've got him in a clothes closet. His death is a secret two people share, me and the killer. That's you. You can clam up or you can talk. Whatever your motive was, it can wait. I can wait. But you're licked. Two murders. You did them both. Yes. I did them both. Cleo Odell, because she knew me when we met, she recognized me. An ugly and untalented person. I was forced to see that she won our contest. And after victory, I knew there'd be other blackmail, other tribute to pay. I didn't dispose of her first. What did Cleo have on you? An unsolved murder. In the long ago past. Seventeen years ago. My wife, I'd struck her fatally in the heat of a quarrel. I'd fled, left town. And later, resumed my life elsewhere. Here in New York with a new name. Cleo Odell was a Janet Tyler. In her teens then. The daughter of an ex-door neighbor in our town. Ironic twist. Cleo showing up in your contest 17 years later. You're escaping the police in all that time, but running afoul of Cleo. A retribution. I'd have to pay for my crime sometime, I knew. I always knew. Cornell. Why did he have to die? Cornell could tell you that I had influenced him to favor Cleo. You see, I'd agreed... To blackmail before. Before you decided that the only good blackmailer was a dead blackmailer. Yes. 
I wasn't at first aware of the lady's avarice. But I would be a captive forever. Case solved. You're under arrest for murder. Murder new and old. Now, who was it who said, your sins will find you out? You've been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's story, Murder by Threes, was written by John Robert. And now, another mystery on Mystery Radio XXX. This is your FBI. This is your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security, and to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight, the story of a crime against the community, bank robbery. According to the 19th century German philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, only the weak man is moral. The strong man, the superior man, is above morality. As the basis of the Nazi religion of the Superman, this philosophy produced a nation of gangsters. It can make a criminal out of any human being who permits his ego to feed upon it. Tonight's case is the story of a young man who made the Nietzsche philosophy his religion. A highly intellectual youth with an extraordinary educational background. He was precocious as a child, cynical as an adolescent. And now... Well, our story opens at a cabin resort on a lake in northern Illinois. It is nearly sundown. Philip Houston and his young bride of a week are strolling along the lake shore. It's going to be a lovely sunset, Philip. The storm would be even more beautiful. You know, nature is never more beautiful than when she's angry. When the thunder rolls and rumbles, crashes, and lightning cuts a gash across the sky. And the wild wind and rain beat against the house and smash trees to earth. And swollen streams become raging torrents. And leap over their banks. And crush everything in their way. Phil. Yes? I love storms, too. That's part of what I've been talking to you about the oh. past three days. The beauty of power, of force. Remember what I've said? Remember? To annihilate that which is weak, imperfect, ugly, and to build instead that which is strong, perfect, beautiful. And that then makes the act of annihilation itself beautiful. Yes. Oh, look! 
took Skippy's come down to the shore to meet us. Well, hello, Skippy fella. How are you? Oh, you're that silly-looking animal I ever saw. Stella. <laughs> yes? You might as well test yourself right now on a very important lesson. What do you mean, Phil? I've told you, you must have no emotional attachments for anybody or anything. Quiet, Skippy. That kind of love is weakness. It rules the one who indulges it. You must overcome it now. Here, take this pistol. Why? Take it. Phil, you don't mean you're asking me... The strong me to... must be ready and able to inflict suffering or death upon any enemy of his strength. Phil! Shoot that dog, Della. No. You're forgetting the lesson of obedience, too. No, no, Phil, I can't. All right, I can't. give me the pistol. Phil, no, no! <laughs> When you've gotten hold of yourself, Della, come on to the cabin. Mr. Houston! Mr. Houston! Oh, good evening, Mrs. Shaw. Oh, I, I heard a shot. I thought it came it from... It did. I had to shoot Mrs. Houston's dog. You had to... Oh, but why? I'd like to settle my bill now, Mrs. Shaw. We're leaving before dawn. We have an appointment some distance away. <laughs> To the disciple of the role of force, that which is an enemy of strength must be annihilated. The dog provoked affection, affection is weakness. Therefore, Philip Houston destroyed the dog. As for the appointment he and Della had some distance away, it is two minutes after nine o'clock the next morning. The Freeport, Illinois National Bank has just opened its doors for business. It is a small bank and only one teller is on duty at the moment. He is counting his supply of currency when he becomes aware of a shadow across the counter and looks up into the muzzle of a pistol. Excuse me, Mr. Teller. Uh, what? Uh, this is a hold-up. Uh, yes, it sort of looks that way. And if you're reaching with your foot for the alarm pedal, don't bother. Oh. Uh, put all your money in this bag. Here. Very well. And don't worry about the rest of the staff. They're under the watchful care of the young lady over there with a the submachine gun. You... you won't get away with this. That's what you've told yourself so often, isn't it? You're envious of my courage to do the thing you've... often been tempted to do yourself. It's the fear of apprehension that keeps most people honest. And put in those tens, too. Very well. Most people are weak, and they make laws to... Make a virtue of their lack of courage. There. All right. Give me the bag. Here you are. Thank you. You've cooperated splendidly. I, I st still say you won't get away with this. Mr. Teller, none of us lives this life forever. But it's far better to live it courageously than cowardly. Philip Houston, the Superman, and his bride escaped with $20,000 in cash plus securities. A few minutes after the robbery, the Chicago office of the FBI was notified, and Special Agent Cameron went to work. At the bank, employees gave him a good description of the couple, but there were no other clues at the scene. Houston had been careful to leave no fingerprints, and no one had seen which way the bandit car left town. 
With the aid of the local police, Cameron began combing the country over a wide radius. And it was the next afternoon when he reached the lake resort and questioned the owner, Mrs. Shaw. The descriptions check all right, Mrs. Shaw. And you say Philip Houston and his wife left here about dawn the morning of the robbery? Yes, sir. That would have given them time enough to reach Freeport and get set for the robbery, all right. Here's something that might help. What's that? Well, after the way he killed that dog, I got suspicious of such a mean man and took down his auto license number. Good for you. It's on this slip of paper. Here it is. Hmm. A Michigan license. Uh, Mrs. Shaw, I'd like to look at the register he signed when they checked in. All right. Oh, but he had me sign for them. Oh? Careful not to leave any fingerprints, wasn't he? Of course. I never thought of that at the time, but... Wait a minute. Yes? When I was cleaning up after they left, I found a book he'd left behind the bed. Must have fallen over without him knowing it. May I... I have it, please? It's right here on the desk. Here you are. Hmm. Ecce homo. I couldn't make head nor tails of it. It's in some foreign language. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of books that didn't make much sense to me, even in English. This but... one's in German. The work of the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. And it explains a lot about our Mr. Philip Houston. You don't say. Yes. And I'm pretty sure we'll find some fingerprints that might tell us a lot more. That night, Special Agent Cameron contacted the Detroit FBI office and requested a check on the Michigan license number of the bandit car. Also, he airmailed to Washington fingerprints he found in the book. Next morning, there was another bank robbery a hundred miles south of Chicago. And that afternoon, found Houston and Della hiding in the barn of an abandoned farm. Della? Yes? From now on for a while, we'll hide out by day and travel by night. Until we get where we're going. Where are we going, Phil? You'll know when we get there. And after that, we'll take off time for some real fun. But, darling, the police will still be looking for us. And we'll still be outwitting them. Now, you curl up and get some sleep. I'll keep watch. No, I... I'm not sleepy. Della? Yes? Look in this bag. That's over $30,000. I know. Money is power, Della. Power to do whatever you want to do. Go everywhere you want to go. Have everything you want to have. I know, Phil. What chance, what what chance would you have for this back home, huh? Scrubbing and cooking. Scrimping and saving. Moving in a circle that gets tighter and tighter until it chokes the very breath of life out of you. Do you want that? Of course not. No. You and I have got to be free souls. And our freedom is in this bag. It's full now, Della. And it's going to stay that way. Because we're smart enough and strong enough to keep it full. Do you understand? Yes, Phil. Della soon dropped off to sleep, and Philip Houston relaxed with a book. But his Superman self-assurance would have been a little disturbed had he known what was taking place in the Chicago office of the FBI. Cameron speaking. Hello, Cameron. Murphy, Detroit. Oh, hello there. Have you got something on that Michigan license? Yes. It's a 1938 black Buick sedan. 
bought two weeks ago from a used car dealer mm-hmm. and re-registered under the name of John Weatherford. Any description of Weatherford? It checks with your man, Houston. All right. Motor number? Uh, six three two three nine three oh oh. Got it? Nine three oh oh. Right. I'll put out a five-state alarm on it right away. Thanks a lot. Busy, Leo? No. What have you got, George? Teletype from Washington. The fingerprints on the book have been identified. Good. They belong to Philip Windsor, who served time in Kansas State Reformatory. And the description is that of so-called Philip Houston. Well, Mr. Windsor better pray for a quick cool spell. His trail's getting hot. We momentarily close the Federal Bureau of Investigation file on Philip Windsor, bank robber. We'll return to this case in just a moment. As you read today's newspapers, you undoubtedly experienced a profound feeling of satisfaction when you noted how quickly America has begun to return to the ways of peace. Already a number of the restrictions that were necessary in time of war have been lifted. Others will soon be removed. Business, as well as government, is playing an important role in hastening this return to normal living conditions. And in the forefront of this movement is the management of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. During the war, it was necessary to exclude certain war risks from newly issued life insurance policies. But yesterday, one day after hostilities ended, Thomas I. Parkinson, president of the Equitable Society, announced that the society would discontinue effective immediately the war clauses in life insurance policies hereafter issued. This means that Americans, even if now serving in the Army or Navy, can now buy an equitable society policy that contains no restrictions as to war risks. Just as the Equitable Society is alert to peacetime opportunities to improve and liberalize its life insurance services to the public, so its funds will continue to work in ways that benefit the country as a whole. Equitable society dollars, the result of the work, thrift, and savings of the American people, will continue to be invested in the great industries which are now converting to peacetime production to provide jobs for our returning servicemen. Yes, by serving its members, the Equitable Society serves America. And now, back to the file on Philip Windsor, bank robber. Criminals are not always products of an underprivileged childhood. Many of them had more than comfortable homes, and many of them received the advantages of an excellent education. What caused them to turn to crime? Some started out merely seeking new thrills. Others? Well, let's go on with the story of the young man in tonight's case, whose real identity has been established as Philip Windsor. The FBI now knows that Windsor and his wife are driving a 1938 black Buick sedan, Michigan license. And so far, maybe as a kind of dare, are operating only in the limited area 
of Illinois. Hi, George. Oh, come in, Leo. Any report from that alarm on Windsor's car? Not yet, but here's a file on him from the Kansas Reformatory. He got ten years for a Kansas robbery, but was paroled after two. Yes, I see. Thanks to a good family background. His father was a university professor. Uh-huh. In a nutshell, Windsor was a precocious kid who eventually became contemptuous of everything normal and conventional. And overripe for the power philosophy of old Frederick Nietzsche. Exactly. Come in. This teletype just came in. Thanks, Ruth. Well, what is it? A report from Belleville. The police down there found Windsor's Buick in a local garage an hour ago. I see. He left it there to have the motor overhauled and rented a Ford from him to use while the car was being fixed. Hmm. In other words, he just traded cars. Yes. The Belleville police have already sent out an alarm on the Ford. You think Windsor is going out of sight for a while? It looks that way. And the safest place to do that would be at some friend's house. Yes. Let's get a wire off to the Kansas Reformatory. I want to know just who Windsor's friends are. It was at about this same time, shortly after dark, that Philip Windsor and his wife, Della, slipped out of a cheap roaming house in East St. Louis, down in southern Illinois, got into the Ford sedan and drove rapidly out of the city and headed north. In a few hours now, Della, we'll be in Chicago. Then what? Then I'll contact my friend Kingston, and he'll give us a safe haven for as long as we need it. Personally, Phil, I would like to hurry up and get some of that freedom you were talking about. Oh, we have it right now. You call this freedom? Aren't we doing the things we set out to do? Aren't we living our own lives in our own way? I don't call having to hide out by day and slip around by night freedom. And knowing that the police are constantly looking for us. I don't call that freedom either. I don't want to be disappointed in you, Della. Disappointed? I chose you because I thought you had strength and courage. Have I shown anything else? Your behavior right now is a sign of weakness. I'm just tired of running and hiding. That's all part of the game, Della. But we don't call it running and hiding. Those are cowardly words. What do we call it, then? This is a game that requires consummate courage, daring, and skill. And in every game, there are offensive moves and defensive moves. Of course, We have but... committed two offensive moves. Now we are meeting the inevitable counterattack with defensive measures. Don't you see? Yes, yes, I see. State Highway Patrol. What do we do? Just keep calm and leave the rest to me. Pull over to the side and stop. Yes, sir. your own car? Yes, sir, my own car. And my own brand new wife. We're on our way home from a little honeymoon trip and we... Let me see your license. Oh, marriage or car license? I don't inspect marriage licenses. All right. My car license is in my bag on the back seat. I'll get it for you. Was I going too fast, officer? I'm not interested in that angle now. Ah, here it is. Here you are, officer. Phil. That's one counterattack repulse, Della. Yes, one counterattack repulsed. 
but another was about to form in the FBI's Chicago office. It is nearly midnight, and Special Agent Cameron, who went out for a bite of food while waiting for the report from the Kansas Reformatory on Windsor's friends, is re-entering the office. Did that report come in yet, George? Yes, and so did another one. What do you mean? Windsor slugged a highway patrolman who stopped him on the road out of East St. Louis about 9 o'clock. Which way was Windsor headed? Right here, Chicago. What's the report on his friends? After he got out of the reformatory, he corresponded regularly with a Marvin Kingston who was still in. But he's out now. Where? Chicago. And here's the address. Good. Keep your fingers crossed, George. This may be the beginning of the payoff. Three days, FBI agents kept a close watch on Marvin Kingston and his house. But Windsor made no contact with Kingston by person or by phone or by mail. Then on the afternoon of the fourth day, at the corner grocery a block from Kingston's house, an attractive young blonde came out of the store with a small sack of groceries. She spoke to a little girl rolling a doll buggy. Hello, honey. Hello. Do you know where Mr. Kingston lives? Uh Uh-huh, right down there. Well, if you'll deliver this sack of groceries to Mr. Kingston and your doll buggy, I'll give you a whole dime. Do you want to? Sure. Where's the dime? Here you are. Thank you. And there are the groceries. And tell your dolly to hold on to them tight now, won't you? Oh, she will. Thank you, honey. Goodbye. Bye. Now, Rosemarie, you hold on to that sack good, like the pretty lady said. Hold on, we're going now. The little girl reached Kingston's house and was about to take the sack from the buggy and start up the front walk when Special Agent Cameron intercepted her. What have you got there, little girl? In the sack? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not mine. It's for Mr. Kingston. Oh. A pretty lady gave me a whole dime to bring it here. Really? Uh Uh-huh. I wonder what's in it. Can I take a look? Well, just one. But you can't have any of whatever it is. (laughs) I promise not to touch anything. All right. Then take just one little peek now. Mm Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you. Now, go ahead and deliver the sack. Agent Cameron watched until the girl had delivered the sack and gone. Then he went up to the house and introduced himself to Marvin Kingston. I'm Special Agent Cameron of the FBI. What do you want with me? There was a message in that sack of groceries from Philip Windsor. What makes you think so? You're on parole, Kingston. Do you want to face a charge of conspiracy? All right, here's a note. Winter wants me to meet him at 8 o'clock tonight at Joe's Hamburger Stand on Euclid Avenue. But you'll have to stay here. The FBI will meet Philip Windsor. At 7.30 that night, several FBI agents joined Cameron and took up positions at various points outside the hamburger stand. Promptly at 8 o'clock, a car drove up and parked half a block away. Philip Windsor and his wife got out, walked to the hamburger stand, and went in. 
The agents saw them order soft drinks. Minutes passed. Windsor grew restless. Finally, at 8.15, he spoke to Della quietly. Something must have gone wrong. I'm sure the little girl delivered the sack with a note. Maybe Kingston wasn't at home to get it. Oh, shall we take a chance and call him? No. Drink your soda. I don't want any more. What are you nervous about? What are you? I'm not nervous. I've never seen you act this way before. I tell you, I'm not... I'm not nervous. Well, I am. I've got a funny feeling. Shut up. And so have Shut you. Shut up, I tell you. Come on, let's get out of here. Where are we going? Let's get out of here, I said. Come on. Go ahead. All right. Come on, back to the car. Phil. What's the matter? Stop where you what? are, both of you, and raise your hands. Not for anybody. Phil! Don't reach for your gun, Windsor. We're the FBI. Phil, don't! You're his wife, Della? Yes. I... I'm sorry. It didn't have to end this way, you know. Yes, I'm afraid it did. It never could have ended any other way for Phil. Philip Windsor had no respect for law-abiding citizens. He said, It is far better to live courageously than cowardly. And saying that, he showed his contempt for those of us who lead conventional lives. Philip Windsor would have been smart to have looked at the record of this nation at war. Because the courage of conventional ordinary people has been proven on every battlefield. Freedom from tyranny was won on those battlefields for you the law-abiding conventional citizen of the world. And freedom from criminal aggression is being won for you here in America by the special agents of the FBI. The special agents who every day prove he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. That's the way the Bible puts it. And the history of the world has shown how right the Bible is. You'll hear the disposition of this case in just a moment. Did you know that in a single battleship of the United States Navy, there are more than 900 electric motors, a thousand different electrical instruments, 1,100 telephones, 1,600 electronic tubes, and a wiring system 1,700 miles long? All that on one battleship. That gives you an idea of the tremendous wartime assignment that the electrical manufacturing industry received from Uncle Sam. Radar, automatic plane pilots, smoke generators, sound detectors, range finders. These are only a few of the thousands of complex electrical products supplied an enormous quantity to our armed forces. So will you join the Equitable Society in a salute to the electrical manufacturing industry and its one million employees? Theirs has been an outstanding job of war production, a credit to the industry, 
and to the American system under which that industry flourishes, and a promise of better living for all of us in the peaceful years to come. For many years, the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States has regarded electrical manufacturing as a sound and safe field for the investment of Equitable Society funds. So millions of Equitable Society dollars have been invested in electrical manufacturing, as well as in scores of other great industries which were mobilized for war production. In wartime, Equitable Society dollars have been fighting dollars. And at all times, they are security dollars. For you, your home, and your country. After the death of her husband, Della Windsor was convicted for her part in the bank robberies and sentenced to ten years' imprisonment. The incidents used in tonight's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Programs in this series of particular interest to servicemen overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. the music was under the direction of Frederick Steiner. The author was Frank Ferries. Your narrator was Frank Lovejoy. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. Now this is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for This is Your FBI. Join us again next time on Mystery Radio X. X.